The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I really, really love December, and I love everything about the month of December. So I'm very thrilled for tonight for the Christmas program to be thinking and hearing about Christmas in its full meaning, Jesus, which is what makes December wonderful. And I love the Gospel of Matthew. And so we continue it this morning in Matthew 2, and we'll see in it that everyone worships, even if they're not totally clear on what they truly worship. We'll see in Matthew 2 a contrast. The wise men are going to declare that they want to worship Jesus. And shortly after, Herod will declare that he too wants to worship Jesus. It is inescapably true that everyone worships, and yet we're not always very clear on what we truly worship. Here in Matthew 2, we have to define worship the way Matthew will in in Matthew chapter 2. Most American ears, when you hear the word worship, you probably picture a church or some candles or a liturgy. You have all these connotations that jump into your mind. But if you were just to read Matthew and see the way he uses the word worship, There's no church, there's no liturgy, and yet he's using the word worship. What does worship mean as Matthew is explaining it to us? And I think it can be said this way. Worship is whatever you actually make your king. Worship is whatever you functionally make of most importance to yourself in your life. Worship is whatever you make your king. David Foster Wallace was a very secular novelist, a a very famous one in America. He was someone who did not believe in God, not not a religious person at all, and yet he spoke at a commencement at Kenyon College, and here's what he said. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of deity or God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If that's where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before others finally plant you in the grave. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll always need more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, the insidious thing about these forms of worship, according to Wallace, is not necessarily their evil, but their unconscious reality. He said they are default settings. Now, several years later, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. And hence, that phrase in the middle of his commencement speech these things will eat you alive, came to an eerie fruition in his own life, a man who never believed in God. See, everyone worships, and yet we may not even be clear on what we actually worship most. So this morning, if you have the notes I sent you, um, there's really three big points. If you don't have them, hopefully they're very easy to follow. And if you're watching on the screen elsewhere in the building or at home, you'll see them on the bottom of the screen. Here they are. The first is everyone worships, The second is, how do you know what you worship? And the third is, who or what is actually worth worshiping? 
So now we begin with the first. Everybody worships. And that's why the title of today's sermon is Who Will Be King? Let's look now in Matthew 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now that phrase that Matthew records tells us the setting, the time, and the place. The first phrase, though, now after, refers to Matthew 1. If you were here last week in Matthew 1, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's the point of the genealogy. We also saw that Jesus is the Savior of those who put their faith in him. That's the very meaning of his name. He came to save his people from their sins. We also saw that if Jesus enters your life as king, it radically alters your life, as we saw in Mary and Joseph. But now the next phrase, Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the setting. And to a reader who knows the setting, it would mean a lot. It'd be like in English if I told you, hey, do you guys know Rick? He was born in Charlotte at the end of World War II. Suddenly in your mind, you can think about a place and a time and what it was like then and there. Or uh, my mom's mom, she was born in the 1920s in Soviet Russia when Vladimir Lenin was about to leave power and Joseph Stalin was rising into power. Just that phrase tells you a little about what her life was like. Matthew here wants you to know what Jesus's life was like, what its upbringing was like. He was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, which would immediately cause us to ask, well, then what's Herod like? So let's take a few minutes on that. D.A. Carson writes, Herod was wealthy politically and he was gifted. He was an excellent administrator and clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb and his building projects were admired even by his foes, but he loved power. So let me tell you three things about Herod. First, Herod loved him some Herod. <laughs> he was showy in the way he did things. He built temples and palaces and put his name all over them. Second, Herod was psychotically paranoid about losing power. Herod's first wife, he feared, was conspiring against him, so Herod had his wife killed. Then he feared that his sons, all three of them from his first wife, might rise to power, so he had all three of his sons killed. A few years later, when he, um, well, earlier, I'm sorry, when he was inaugurated as king, he invited all of his family's enemies over to a festival as a show of peace, and then he had the festival ambushed, and he killed all of those relatives. The Emperor Augustus said of Herod, it would be better to be Herod's sow than one of his sons. I don't know that you could say anything worse about a man. Third, Herod was a selfish, heavy-handed despot. If you hate paying taxes, imagine if Herod was your governor. Herod took 50% of everything you made, and then Caesar took 12.5%, and then the tax collector took a little bit more, like Zacchaeus. Meaning most people, if you went out and caught 100 fish, you had to give up 75 of them. Herod psychotically took advantage of his people. One day he was having struggles, one particular year, he was struggling financially. And so he made up trumped up charges against the 45 wealthiest citizens in Israel, and he killed all of them, and he seized their estates. That's how he balanced the budget that year. So when you read in Matthew 2 that Jesus was born in the days of Herod, you need to have a sense of what that was like. And yet that was God's perfect time to send his son into the world. When God sent Jesus into the world, the newborn king was set up against these people who all now had their true object of worship rattled. So look again in verse 1. 
We continue as we read, Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we've been introduced to Herod. Now we're introduced to the wise men. Who were they? There's so much you could read about them. And frankly, it spans quite a gamut of information. Apparently, wise men in the first century spanned everything from goofy charlatans who were taking advantage of people to people who studied stars and ancient writings seriously, more like today's science and philosophy students. I think that's who these wise men were like. So they would have studied the stars scientifically, but they also knew the ancient writings of the Old Testament. Very likely then they read Numbers 24, verse 17, which says this, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here are people looking to see if God's word will be fulfilled. And in the sky, they see this supernatural miracle. But because of it, they travel a great distance with the desire, notice, to worship this newborn king. But notice verse three, we read quite a contrast. The wise men have come to worship, but look in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The Greek word means disturbed, angered, made very upset. Think about that for a moment. In Matthew 1, we read about angels rejoicing at the newborn king. We read about Mary and Joseph gladly submitting to the newborn king. And now the wise men have come to worship the newborn king. But here we read the first person who hears the same good news and yet is troubled and disturbed by it. So this good news for him is only bad news. So why is he troubled and angered? Let me point out a couple things in verse 3 so you're not confused by them. Do you notice the end of verse 3? It says not only Herod was troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. At first you might think, wait, does that mean everybody was upset that Jesus was being born? No, that's not at all what it means. It means that they knew that when Harold was troubled, that's trouble for them. Have you ever heard the phrase, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? (laughs) This is what it's talking about here. If Herod is upset, then everybody's life is in danger. So Herod is an angry man. Why? Because don't forget what I said at the beginning. Everyone worships. And you always find out what you really worship. So let's see what Herod really worships. Verse 4. Assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. Don't miss this phrase. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, he's quoting Micah 5 too, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And here's why. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I need to pause here to make a very important application. Have you ever observed that knowing scripture and loving God don't always go together? Though they should. You should know scripture and by it, love the Lord. But have you noticed there are many people that know the Bible and do not love and follow Christ? You see them in this passage, right? Did did you catch when Herod wants to know where Jesus will be born, he wants to know what the Bible says. Meaning Herod believes the authority and sufficiency of scripture. He trusts that the Bible is true. And yet Herod's going to use the Bible for the worst possible purposes of those promises. 
meaning he's going to pervert the Bible. Surely you know people who do the same. They can quote the Bible, but only to bludgeon people. Now, Herod uses it abusively, but so do the chief priests and scribes. If you've grown up in church and you know Matthew's gospel, you know where the chief priests and scribes are going to be by the end. But just notice where we see their toes pointing here in Matthew chapter 2. When they're asked, where does the Bible say Jesus is going to be born? They quote the Bible and then go back to business like nothing important has happened. Why aren't they going with the wise men? Because there are lots of people who know about the Bible just as intellectual information that doesn't change anything for them. You see, Herod rejects king with hostility and rage, but you can also reject the king with apathy and indifference. See, what you really worship will always eventually surface. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them. Don't miss the word ascertain. What a shrewd, Machiavellian, manipulative ruler he is. He gets them all in the room and knows just how to manipulate people to get the information he wants. From what he learned from them, what time the star had appeared. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now pretend like you've never read Matthew 2, because you'll pay closer attention to it. So far, everybody has said, we want to worship Jesus, but we're going to find out who really does. Because everyone worships, and what you truly worship will eventually bubble to the surface. Harold says, yes, I want to worship Jesus, but we're going to see what all of these people really find as an object of their worship. So now verse 9, the narrative sort of puts a pause on the story of Herod and now moves the spotlight over to the wise men to go fuller with what they really worship. So now notice verse 9. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. What a supernatural miracle God did. Now notice verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Pause on that. Did you get the the point? They were happy. (laughs) Look at all the redundancies. Rejoiced joy exceedingly with great. You're using all the grammatical words you can to point out just how thrilled they are. Their heart is overwhelmingly bursting with gladness because the king has arrived. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the the child with Mary, his mother, and notice this, they fell down and worshiped him. Remember earlier they said, we want to come worship him? Well, in their case, they really do. This is what they love most. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For that reason, many people historically picture three wise men. We have a little people manger set, and they only gave us three. But I don't know how many there were. We just know there are three gifts. What we're supposed to learn from this, though, is the heart and the hands of the wise men. Their heart bursts with joy and their hands are open with gifts. Therefore, we're seeing something about true worship. But now notice verse 12. 
being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, meaning the angels surely behind both dreams and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now the main point of Matthew 2 is who will be king and what you worship. But here in the middle, there is an application that has a lot of relevancy for us today that I can't spend too much time on. But I want you to notice this, that God told both the wise men and Herod to disobey the government. Did you catch that? God told both the wise men and Herod to disobey the government. Did you know, and this is very, very important, we are to obey government as God's servant, Romans 13 tells us. But government is a derivative authority that is underneath God's authority. And whenever government tells us to disobey God, we must obey God and not submit to government. This is in the very Christmas narrative. I could spend much more time on it. (laughs) And you can email me if you have questions about the role of the Christian and government. But just notice here that in order to worship God, Government must not impede the actual worship of God that is necessary. It's even in the Christmas narrative. But now back to the point, a point of what you truly worship. Now we saw what the wise men truly worship. Let's see what Herod truly worships. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. How does someone get to a place where they murder babies? How does that happen? How do you get to a place where you're so angry that you're murdering baby boys? Do you know how it happens? Because everyone worships. And if what you worshiped now becomes challenged by something that you see inconvenient, you will go to lengths that you never fathomed you would go to. You will do things that are so unspeakably evil that you have to come up with a way to make them act like they're normal, like we should see them as civilized, when they're actually barbaric and godless. But the real reason you do it is because the thing you love most is threatened. You see, Herod cares most about something other than the king, and it caused him to go to lengths of depravity that are low even for him. Herod had previously killed his own sons. Now he's killing other families' sons because there's something for Herod that he wants to protect. But this shows us something about the nature of sin. Sin enslaves. Sin twists. Sin corrupts. And so when you worship the wrong king, you go to depths you thought you would never go to. When God warned Esau that sin crouches at the door, you see, when you open the door, you can't control how much you let in. And much more comes in than you ever anticipate. At home, we have a 
video filtering service that allows us to watch movies and it filters things out of them. And that's why I'm always hesitant to tell people a movie I watched because it'll show me the normal runtime and then the after filtering runtime. And one time I watched a movie that was 22 minute, minutes shorter than the normal movie. So I don't know if I watched the same thing everybody else watched. But recently I watched um, an edited version of a movie called There Will Be Blood. And I don't recommend it. It was dark and it was really weird. But it helped me understand Herod. In the movie, uh, Daniel Day Lewis plays a person called Daniel Plainview. And he's this guy who has this burning ambition to be something and do something and have power and importance and control. In the movie at the beginning, he's trying to find silver. And to get silver, he's willing to dig steps into the ground, this is the late 1800s, and then break his leg and crawl his way back to town to parlay a little bit of silver into the ability to now mine for oil. Along the way, he picks up a child who's not his own son, and he uses the child to manipulate farm owners and property owners into thinking that he's a family man so that he can steal more oil from them. At some point, his son is an impediment to his own greed. And so his relationship with his son is strained and then estranged. But in the middle of the movie, there's a very important section of dialogue where he says this, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. And throughout the movie, he does indeed find reasons to hate people. He is set against a charlatan pastor priest who is a clown and who is an evil person who's also in it for the money. He uses that for extra reason for him to continue in his own sinful greed. But by the end of the movie, without giving it all away, he ends up totally alone. And the movie ends with shocking violence, rage, and loneliness. See, that's how Herod could kill baby boys. Because sin always takes you much further than you originally intend. And when you worship the wrong king, there's a law of diminishing returns and it needs more from you and more from you and more from you until you realize that you're the one actually enslaved. So now number two, how do you know what you worship? Look back at the wise men again. Verse two, don't miss, sorry, then in verse one, they came from the east, meaning they traveled a long distance. Verse three, they came to worship him. Verse nine, they continued on their way. Verse 11, they opened, notice the pronoun, their treasures to give them away. Here are two things we learned from the wise men to help us know what we worship. First, what will you inconvenience yourself for? And second, what are you willing to spend on even radically or generously? What are you willing to inconvenience yourself for? And what are you willing to spend on? We all have discretionary time. We might call it free time. We all have discretionary income. How do we use those things? What do they reveal about what we actually cherish? Like an athlete who gives up sleeping in in the morning and his favorite foods because he has something else greater that he loves. What is that greater thing you love that causes you to give up the ancillary things? But also some observations from Herod. Remember verse 7, he secretly learned from them. Verse 9, he promised he wanted to worship him. But now we read in verse 15, he's come to search and kill the child. Verse 16, he became furious and then he's murdering baby boys. Here's two observations from Herod. First, to help you know what you worship. What if you lose it, would you become furious over? What if you lose it, would you become furious over? Not sad over, 
It's okay to be sad over things we lose. What would you become furious over? Remember, Job lost his family but did not curse God. What do you become furious over? Because this thing is everything to you. What is so important to you that you would bend ethics, compromise truth, and even harm other people to protect it? If you can answer those questions, you'll figure out what actually is your king. You see, Herod probably has three counterfeit kings that he's worshiping. I think they are identity, freedom, and power. Let me explain them. Identity. Herod believes that his entire existence is tied to his accomplishments and position. And if anything threatens his accomplishments and position, it has to be eliminated. Or freedom. Herod believes, I must be able to do what I want at all times, and if anyone constricts my freedom, I have to eliminate that thing, or power. I must be in control. I must have influence over others, and I will attack any threat to my control. But are these not idle kings for many today? Identity, freedom, power. Identity. Many people pursue their career as a form of identity. They take pride in their productivity or their economic status or the inner ring feeling of the professional peer group that they finally made it in. And see, if Jesus would threaten any of that, then they don't need Jesus. But as Herod learned and eventually became paranoid over, anyone pursuing achievement must eventually face the reality that your achievements are inherently unstable and they're less satisfying than you originally thought. Or let's say you worship freedom. When I was a kid growing up, my dad would take me to Detroit Red Wing games. They're a hockey team. If you don't know what hockey is, you walked in today and it was almost 70 degrees, but in the north, it's not like that. (laughs) It gets very cold for a long time and no one knows what to do. So they decided to skate on ice and there's a puck you chase, but mainly you just hit other people. That's hockey. And I remember growing up, we would go to the Red Wing games, and they would sing the Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem. And as a boy, I observed this, and maybe you've observed it too. As you near the end of the song, and they sing out, the land of the free, everybody starts applauding. There's still another phrase, home of the brave, but they're all applauding now, because why? Because it's America, and it's freedom that causes our hearts to ring. Probably the most assumed ideal in America is the idea that no one has the right to restrict on my life in any way. We are independent, free people. Many people wrongly think that they can create their own self without restraint from anyone else, ironically not realizing they're enslaved to the very things they're trying to escape. Let me give you one simple example. Sigmund Freud famously taught that in order to be free, you need to give in to your sexual impulses at all times, to which an obvious response would be, then doesn't that make you a slave to your sexual (laughs) impulses? But these are the kind of things we do all the time in America. Think of people you've seen online write a sentence like this, I'm only responsible to myself and no one has the right to tell me what to do. Which means they just told you that you don't have the right to tell anybody (laughs) what to do. But that phrase, I'm responsible only to myself, think about that. I walked around my house yesterday. Much of the furniture was donated to me. Many of the gifts were given to me. Many of the cabinets up, somebody else helped me install. To think I'm not responsible to anyone is incredibly naively selfish and also exceedingly unjust. 
You don't think you have any obligation to other people around you, to their well-being, to their health, and yet this false illusion of freedom so pervades our society. The third one, power. I have to be in control. It doesn't matter who I manipulate or who I take advantage of. I must be in control. My greatest fear is to be humiliated and to be seen as a fraud. Now, sometimes we see this from leaders in global positions, but don't kid yourself. This happens in homes, in churches, in families, in the most domestic relationships. You can attempt with power to control those in your home and eventually find that you both end up empty. We've noticed our love for freedom conflicts with other things we desire. Many people in our culture wish to be totally free of everything, but then they fall in love with someone else. And they realize that if that other person is displeased with them, that that just destroys everything because they've given themselves to someone else. And so then maybe you say, well, well then I'll, I'll avoid that. But you can't because everyone lives for something. And everyone gives themselves to that other thing. So that other thing ends up being your king, no matter how you try to avoid it. Even if you argue, no, I don't give my heart to anything. Well, then you've given your heart to your own independence. And it will probably make you lonely and angry. So verse 19. Notice how it ends for people like that. But when Herod died, behold. Did you notice how quick Herod's death is? There's no further explanation. No like long look back over the this is your life sort of moment. Nope, Herod died and we move on. So Herod died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land, for those who saw the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, this is one of his later born sons, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We're now ready for our third and final statement. Who or what is worth worshiping? And I want to give you two images to hopefully help us remember it. Here are my two images. Here's the first. Does it cause you to clench your fist? Does it enslave and destroy you? And here's my second image. Or does it cause you to open your hand? Does it free you to joy and generosity? Does it cause you to clench your fist or open your hand? It caused Herod to clench his fist. And he died and was forgotten. And he's never mentioned again in the Gospel of Matthew as he was clutching to his identity, his self-importance, his illusion of freedom, and his power. His life was over. He was replaced by one of the sons he didn't kill. And the world moved on. <laughs> and for all of his mass murdering, political maneuvering, and maniacal threats, he is now and forever known as the guy who tried to kill Jesus. And here he has remained in eternity, isolated by himself, in conscious torment, while no one will ever again hear any of his murderous rage. You see, he picked the wrong object of worship. He made the wrong thing king. But on the other hand, does it cause you to open your hand? The wise men inconvenienced themselves by going on a long journey. They gave up their treasures gladly because they rejoiced with exceeding joy. You see, if you have the right object of worship, it frees you with joy and generosity. 
Again, I ask, what do you inconvenience yourself for? What are you willing to spend on? What, if you lose it, would you become furious over? What matters to you so much you would bend ethics, compromise truth, and hurt other people to protect it? That's your king. That's why when Jesus grows up, he'll say this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. What will it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? See, you can clench your fist and hold on to everything, and guess what? You're going to lose it anyway. Or you can open your hand and finally gain what you can never lose. Christ has come to be the one king that never lets anyone down. And yet millions of people this season walk around with a clenched fist, Hatred and fear of what the king of kings might steal from them. But this king who they so hate and dread, what kind of king is he? Let's talk again about identity, freedom, and power. Do you know what Jesus' identity is? Creator of all. King of kings. And yet he came not for pride of personal accomplishments. And yet he will bear slander and oppression unjustly and not even open his mouth to defend his name. He is actually free. He is independent of all of his creation. He has no obligation to come and to save it. And yet the Word, the eternal preexistent God the Son, became flesh so that he could die to self, so that he could give his body for us. We talk about a lust for power. The one person who has all power on heaven and earth, instead of birth in a palace, he chooses a manger. Instead of creation as an adult, he comes in the weakness of a baby. Instead of a crown of gold, he wears a crown of thorns. Instead of a high rise to look over his world, the only hill he climbs is to a cross on Calvary. Instead of crushing any who dare to humiliate him, he cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is the king that you clench your fist against? This is the king who comes so that we can be saved. And yet this week, as I was walking in the hallway here, I was thinking, Lord, how did Herod get to a point where he murdered babies? And the Lord reminded me that God had laid the iniquity of us all on this king. See, no one in this room and no one watching this video can think that you're unlike Herod. We're all guilty of his death. Ashamed, we hear our mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. What a king we have that he comes for sinners like us. And there are three breadcrumbs in the passage that show us the kind of king he will be. I want to point them to you. They're breadcrumbs because Matthew gives you a hint of what the rest of Matthew is going to be. And all three of the breadcrumbs are his quotations of the Old Testament. The first one, remember in verse 5 where he quotes Micah 5, 2, he'll be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Did you know verse 1 of Micah 5 says this, that the king will be struck by a rod. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a king who's struck to save his people. The second quotation Matthew makes, look in Matthew 2, verse 18, when he quotes a voice in Ramah of Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel was used by the Jewish people as something of a matriarch for the nation of Israel. And this was said when they were taken into exile that there was weeping over their exile. But do you know what the rest of Jeremiah 31 says? 
God will send someone who brings hope and then that person will bring a new covenant and he will forgive his people of their sins and God will write the law on their hearts. See, Jesus is the king who turns weeping to hope by earning salvation, by suffering for our sin. Here's the third breadcrumb that's my favorite. It's verse 15 of Matthew 2. It's the third and final quotation Matthew makes of the Old Testament. Here he quotes Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now everyone who knows anything about the Old Testament knows, he's referring to the fact that the nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt and God, through the Passover, called the Israelites out of slavery, called his son out of Egypt. But see, now the greater son has come. The Passover lamb has arrived and he will bring his people out of slavery. That's why Matthew's showing the fulfillment of all the things that the Son will do. And these breadcrumbs will be fulfilled in the bread of life throughout the book of Matthew. You see, the counterfeit kings that we hold on to, identity, freedom, and power, are replaced and fulfilled by the King of Kings. You know what your true identity is? To be complete in Christ. Do you know what your true freedom is? to be rescued from slavery and to be free in Christ. Do you know what your true power is? By letting go of your life and losing it so you finally gain it eternally and forevermore in Christ alone. John Newton is best known as the author of Amazing Grace. Perhaps you know a little bit of his story. He was the captain of a slave ship who traded human beings as slaves. And later, he heard the gospel. And he repented of his life and repented of his sin. And he penned these unforgettable words, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But he wrote other hymns that are lesser known. And in one of his other hymns, he does a wonderful job explaining how God not just saves you from your sin, but changes your heart. That you move from a clenched fist to an open hand. Here's what Newton wrote. Our pleasure And our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. Who will be king? What do you actually love and protect most? What if you lost it you'd become furious over? What gives you the greatest joy. We sang earlier, joy to the world, the Lord has come. You know the next line, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Everyone worships. You figure out what you really worship normally under duress, but who or what is truly worshiping? Who will be king? Let us pray now to the true king. God, may we not clench our fist in anger and fear at the true king. Many people in this world are more like Herod than they think. Because we all are. Every one of us is a son or daughter of Adam who rebelled against the king of kings in the perfect garden of Eden. Let us not be blind to our own rebellious hearts. 
We are guilty of the death of your son. And yet the breadcrumbs in Matthew make clear that Jesus came to give his life willingly for sinners. God commended his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, how could we not take him as our king? How could we not turn from our sin that actually enslaves us and find freedom, identity, and power in the king of kings who reigns for us. So Lord, may we, as the song sings, receive our King. Let our heart prepare Him room. Perhaps, Lord, as a Christian, we, I know I, can still functionally allow something else to be my King. Rescue me of that idolatry. Rescue me of it. Free me from the counterfeit kings that so easily steal your throne. And let me know Christ, and Christ alone is my King. But I pray for people that will be around this December season who, like the scribes and the Pharisees, know the Bible, and yet they don't have Jesus as their King. Let us never confuse an ability to quote Scripture with a love for the person who wrote it. Let us know the difference so that we understand what it means to open our treasures and give them to the king who granted them to us in the first place, to inconvenience ourselves, to follow him wherever he tells us to go, wherever the star guides us today, wherever your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, may we follow fearlessly, regardless of what the opposition is. And may that happen to your glory. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.